Hi, I'm glad you're here. Come on in. We've caught a case. I got a call from a client the other day with a customer experience mystery. Hey, CX detectives, you've got to help me. My company's website sees a lot of traffic, but our sales conversion rates are extremely low compared to how many people are visiting the site. Our marketing funnel is working great, but we just can't figure out why people aren't converting once they hit the site. We could really use some guidance right now. We don't have any insights into what customers are doing when they visit the site and where exactly we've gone wrong. So what do you think? Can you help me figure it out? I'm definitely up to the task, and I know exactly who to team up with on this one. Tim Ash. He's co-founder and CEO of SiteTuners, a strategic conversion rate optimization agency. In other words, he helps design websites to drive sales. SiteTuners has created more than $1.2 billion in value for 1,500 clients in 56 countries worldwide since their founding in 2002. Tim is also a best-selling author, international keynote speaker, and marketing advisor. And what's really cool is that Tim is using his background in evolutionary psychology and marketing to really understand what drives people to buy. Today, Tim is my co-detective as we crack the case of the poorly designed landing page. Because we are CX detectives, real cases solved. I'm Lisa Mishka Allen, VP and Global Head of Marketing at HGS. Let's get started. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the CX Detectives podcast, Tim, as my co-detective. Do you want to introduce yourself and and maybe give us some creds? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Very happy to be with you. I uh, started a digital marketing agency back out shortly after Al Gore invented the interwebs and uh, helped companies around the world improve their websites. Uh, that the field's known as conversion rate optimization. So I've worked with companies like Google, Facebook, Nestle, Expedia, uh, across all vertical industries. And we created a documented $1.2 billion in extra revenue for our clients when I ran my agency. And along the way, I studied evolutionary psychology and marketing, wrote a couple of best-selling books on landing page optimization, and founded the first conference series here and in Europe on conversion rate optimization. It was called Conversion Conference, now called Digital Growth Unleashed. So I have a real broad and eclectic background in making digital experiences better, and also a passion for understanding human behavior. These days, I mostly do public speaking and keynotes around the world. I also do some senior advisory in in the marketing area with executives. That's an incredible background. And you are our shiniest detective star for this, this case that we're cracking, the case of landing page optimization, right? Which is clearly your (laughs) sweet spot. This is a podcast about customer experience. And so that evolutionary psychology combination with the deep, like growing up with the internet, if you will, is going to be incredible as we dive in. Yeah, and I, I am bragging a little more about the the CX side. Uh, well, the whole idea of user experience or user-centered design came from one of my mentors at UC San Diego way back in the 80s, Don Norman. He literally wrote the book on user centered design. And that was one of our undergraduate textbooks. So to me, this is in my DNA, as they say, and the rest of the world's just now catching up. So when you chose to kind of focus on conversions as, you know, in your books and with your company, what made that the key pain point to focus in on? Well, actually, it was a long and winding road to get to conversion rate optimization. We started building some database-enabled websites back in the day. And 
Then we got into driving traffic, early days of pay-per-click marketing. And then through that, we said, well, we can kind of do that better ourselves. So why not become a super affiliate, just use our own money to drive traffic to other people's landing pages. And what we quickly found out is the traffic we were driving was great. The landing pages we were sending it to sucked. So we saw that as the bigger problem. So we'd go to a lot of our clients and say, hey, let us fix your website so we can all make a lot more money. And eventually it turned into a tail wagging the dog situation where we jettisoned our pay-per-click traffic business and instead started focusing on fixing websites. So around 2000 is when I started my CRO agency, uh, which I'm not a part of anymore very actively, and it's called Site Tuners. Okay, so we know a bit more about Tem's credentials now. Let's take a little break, and when we return, we'll get into the case file. This podcast is brought to you by HGS. HGS has renewed its mission as it evolves as a comprehensive digital and CX services partner. HGS is an employer of choice for roles critical to transformation. Digital professionals, data analysts, automation experts, and CX ambassadors. We leverage our experience handling billions of interactions every year to keep pace with rapidly rising expectations in the digital CX economy. Learn more at hgs.cx. Welcome back. Today, Tim and I are working together on solving the case of the landing page that is killing prospective sales. Let's dive in. Before we can even think about cracking the case, we need some more information. I asked our client for a forensic analysis of his website. What evidence did he have that the site wasn't working? So we have a robust marketing funnel and we're getting plenty of traffic. People are consistently clicking through to the site, but when we do the math, our conversion rates are frustratingly low. It's now been four quarters in a row of missed sales targets and we just cannot justify marketing spend if we don't start converting leads at a much higher rate. The bottom line is we cannot afford another quarter of subpar sales numbers. Ouch. Sounds like they're burning through cash and starting to feel desperate. What do you think, Tim? How can they turn this problem around? Well, I think that the very focus on the customer is the important thing. In other words, most marketing activities are focused on the company and say, how do we make more money? How do we squeeze the bottom of the funnel so more money comes out? I call it greedy marketer syndrome, and we're all infected with it. So it's really hard to fight that tendency and to be on the side of your long-suffering visitors, the ones that are, you know, to us, it's abstract little friction points on our website. To them, they're showstoppers, and I don't have enough time in my life to deal with your crap. So I've always tried to have everyone that worked for me really, really advocate for the visitor and, and to be critical, to be unhappy, to find every little friction point to be a, a big problem. And I think that was what was responsible for our success. I'm not trying to figure out how to make money, but how to help people. How do you get your employees to get into the visitor or customer's shoes? How do you teach that as a skill? It's not a skill, it's a mindset. I would say we brought in people from a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, some were technical, some were copywriters, or we had people that were from a customer service background. I think, of course, dealing with the public is a good way to get that. I, so I think the, the main way we tried to instill that was by getting as close to the customer as we could. And, you know, you hear a lot of lip service being 
paid to getting close to the customer. But what we actually did was say, go to the company's call center and listen to whatever complaints people are having. Uh, talk to the salespeople. They'll tell you plenty about objections that they're handling and problems that they're running into. Or just do an unfiltered search on your company's brand name on Twitter. And what you'll find is there's often a hashtag fail attached to that. And that'll really tell you what people think of your brand. So basically get out there on the front lines, get out of the echo chamber. You know, all of us marketers or customer experience, product design people are sitting there talking to colleagues all the time and paying attention to 17 Slack channels. Well, that's not really being out there, you know, close to the customer. Yeah. So it's really about building that sort of customer-centric culture, which can be a dramatic shift for a lot of companies. I love the examples of you can look at call center data, which is rich with insight. You can look at social media. Um, you can actually look at the queries that are coming in. Are there other kind of tricks or tips you have for how to get inside the customer's head? Yeah. One of the key things for me is, um, of course, understanding how the brain really works literally all decisions are made emotionally. There is no such thing as a logical, objective decision. We prioritize them based on either aversions or affinities and things that help our brain survive. And so one of the things I like to do is watch people's actions, not their explanation of their actions. I see a lot of user testing, for example, that involves a talk track. Well, do this task while you talk out loud about it. Well, that means it's, pardon me, total bull. Because it, it's been shown that, you know, decisions are made in one part of the brain and then a split second later, other parts of the brain get activated to explain it and talk about it. And they're unrelated parts of the brain. So Robert Heinlein, a science fiction author, once famously said that man is not a rational animal, he's a rationalizing animal. And I really love that quote. That means we basically justify and make up the reasons, but that's not the real drivers of our behavior. So for example, with online website tasks, what I like to do is set them up so there's extreme time pressure and then just watch what people do. So for example, let's say you're buying women's red high-heeled shoes on a woman's website, on a shoe website. Yeah, I'd say, okay, find the cheapest pair of red high-heeled shoes. You have 30 seconds, go. And then you just watch what people do. You might ask them a few follow-up questions after the fact, but that's just um, you know, random stuff coming at you. The main thing is watch what they do, not what they say. They do a lot of weird things you wouldn't expect. And, that, and that's what gives you the insights into what's broken with, with your customer experience. My friend Steve Krug, who wrote one of the seminal books on, on this subject, it's called Don't Make Me Think. Uh, it's a book about web usability. Some of the examples might be dated, but the principles are absolutely timeless. And he's a big fan of informal user testing, for example. And uh, small groups, they don't have to be experts. They don't have to be carefully chosen, but just watch what people do. Ooh, yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Just watch what people do. It'll tell you a lot about what's going wrong with the website or any customer experience, really. Okay, we need to gather a little more evidence before we conclude our investigation. Well, we designed the website in-house to save some money, and I feel like it's coming back to bite us, to be honest. The site looks nice, but there's something about the usability that's creating friction. We thought we should provide consumers with all the information possible so they could learn about our products, but now I think that may have been a mistake. There's just too much going on. People are getting overwhelmed by all the information. I have a feeling we're already getting to the root of the issue, but let's hear from the master. 
Tim, what do you have to say about it? So time and time again, we see people clicking on things that they don't, that aren't clickable or not clicking on things that should be obvious to click on. And it's just even basic things like that. Uh, I, I find that probably the most common class of problems is not having a clear visual hierarchy on the website. So this is a concept that I developed for, for our designers and as text, graphics, and motion in that order. So in the presence of graphics, text won't get read. In the presence of motion, graphics won't even be looked at. That's just how our visual system and our brain works. And so you'd see a lot of people just over-decorate their site, and then they'd put this really thin outline little button, and they'd float it against a, a complicated photograph or something like that. And that's the most important thing on the page, ostensibly. So people wouldn't be clicking on the button. Big surprise. You'd be surprised how much money we made clients by properly prioritizing that visual hierarchy. You start with the end in mind. One of the things we do when we design websites, for example, is we have a wireframe stage, and most people actually skip that. They go, well, actually, they jump right into visual design. And um, the problem with that, in the immortal words of one of my friends, is uh, people get attached to the visuals, and then they have an opinion. And in my friend's words, an opinion's like an asshole. Everybody's got one. But basically, as soon as you, you get to a visual mock-up, the CEO, everybody will have an opinion about it. And so what we found is you need to be really rigorous when we redesign websites and actually have them sign off on the wireframes and say, look, this is the functional purpose of the page. This is the most important stuff on it. This is what we're trying to have people actually do here. And then when they go back and they start modifying that during the visual design stage, because the designers aren't that disciplined. Then we go, no, 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 let's back it up. This is what we all agreed on and signed off on. Um, I actually had one client, um, won't name them, but it's a Fortune 500 company, take our detailed information architecture work and, and wireframes and then say, well, our designers understand our brand, so they'll take it from here. And they came back with something that had no connection at all to our wireframes. And we said, what happened? And they said, well, the visual designers used it, and I quote, as a rough point of departure for the final design, and that's not <laughs> the way to go. You, you actually jumped ahead to my next question, uh, like based on that, which is how do you balance what you could almost call science, although recognizing all of our decisions are emotional, so none of it is science, right? With what you would call aesthetics. So what the, you know, what looks good versus what actually works and converts. I'd say a couple of general observations. One is less is more. I mean, it's companies like Apple have succeeded on the back of that. The, their big innovations with new iPhone releases is to take away things. Oh, you really don't need that uh, microphone jack. I'm I'm still bitter about the home button. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, joking aside, that simplicity is, is really, really key. And that takes a lot of discipline. Uh, so I'd say... The less clutter there is, the the fewer visual boogers, the better off you are. And let the 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 standard that I ask uh, from our visual designers is this: is how does this visual embellishment directly support an intended call to action on this page? And if you don't have an answer to that, it's not going to be there. It's that simple. That's just you decorating because you're bored and you really wanted to be an artist, but you had to get a graphic design job instead. I'm sorry. That's that's not a reason <laughs> to make my company poorer. Yeah. 
But does any of that play into, so like if a, if you're trying to create a brand look and feel and that is some, whatever it is, elegance or, you know, with Gen Z, like everything is bright and loud and screaming and that's like their aesthetic that they love. How do you balance that customer experience of the, that you want them to experience the brand a certain way with the knowledge that this is or isn't the right way to do things? Yeah. And again, I don't think there are even any cultural differences or generational differences in terms of clarity. And clarity is clarity. And, and, and younger people want clarity, older people want clarity. Yeah, I don't know anybody who says, I'd rather be confused than wander around this page and figure out <laughs> what's important here. So yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to that personally. What I'd say is that the basic idea is that the branding should take a backseat. Yes, you can use your brand colors. I'm sure you have a primary palette and a secondary color palette and you can make sure that whatever the dominant call to action on the page is gets your most dramatic treatment. And that's the only thing of that color on the page. It's not that hard. It's, but basically, it's stay within the lines, color inside the box, whatever you want to call it. It's a paint by numbers and a visual past that you do at the end. But you have to be super clear about the priorities and the purpose of all of those visual elements. That clarity, I think, is as equally as hard to find within the business as it is um, on the business's website. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. So (laughs) do you have any insight into, one, how to get clarity within your own business, and two, how to kind of work with it cross-functionally with different departments to agree on that? Because I think that's where a lot of the ambiguity does come from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like the uh, tale about the blind men touching different parts of the elephant and disagreeing about what it is because one goes, it's a snake. And other one says, it's a wall. And the third one says, it's a tree trunk. And they're all right. (laughs) Uh, Well, it turns out that um, without that top line marching orders, nobody really is, is doing their job. And so I think one of the keys for any brand is to be super clear about your target audience. And that's where it begins and ends. I see a lot of ready, fire, aim stuff going on. And really it begins with who are you trying to influence? Understand who they are, then understand their belief system and values, and only then design products and services and messaging and campaigns for that audience. So without a super clear laser focused understanding of who your audience is, and what their cultural values are, you're going to miss. So I think um, you need to have focus and say no to 96, 97, 98% of um, audience expansion, I guess, tactics. And then you have to have a super clear origin myth that almost acts like a magnet to attract your tribe. So a brand is not that visual styling you put on at the end. It's your It's your brand voice and your attitude and your very reason for being. It's the mission. And that's what millennials and others will will get attracted to. Nobody wants some generic corporate thing. It's it's very forgettable. So you have to have a narrow focus and a clear appeal to those people based on a a deep understanding of of their needs and their larger context. I mean, you may just be a small transactional part of their life. But if you want to attract them, you should still resonate for them. I love that that notion of um, like an origin story kind of bringing in customers to the like brand ethos, right? Do you have a good example of that or like one of your favorite past experiences or consulting projects where you saw that play out? 
Well, I, I, we try to instill that in every one of our clients, and I'm not going to talk necessarily about specifics, but I'll tell you how to do it, if that would be helpful. Absolutely. Um, I mean, usually it takes the form of the, the hero's journey. Um, one of the things I talk about in my latest book, Unleash Your Primal Brain, is about storytelling and the purpose of it, but it's essentially to share secondhand experience so somebody else doesn't have to go through the same trials as we do. So the hero's journey is, okay, the world was good, then something bad happened, I went on a quest, I picked up some unexpected allies, I slayed the dragon and overcame the big problem, and then there was a regreening of the earth. Okay, that's that's your that's Star Wars, mm-hmm. that's the Odyssey, that's any story you've ever heard. Right. Right. And and so you need one of those for your company. So that's the first observation. It can't be just an e-commerce store. And then in in your about us page, you say, well, we use organically grown fair trade hemp uh, materials to make our t-shirts. I'm like, okay, that's buried somewhere. It should be like, ah, all this. I worked in for Adidas and Nike and I saw how they exploit their workers and I thought that this was outrageous and I wanted to have quality clothing at a fair price. So I researched how to, you know, the the Vietnamese Mm -hmm. hand beat Mm -hmm. hemp in order to make something softer than cotton. And I I I worked to source it and I and I make these t-shirts and they're dyed in organic stuff. And uh, you know, so I'm on this passionate mission to bring affordable hemp clothing to the world. Mm-hmm. And then if that if that story doesn't catch me, a generic e-commerce store selling T-shirts certainly won't. Does that apply differently to a services company? I don't think it really changes anything. I think there is a, a, a another layer of difficulty with services is because they're intangible. So to sell services, there's a great book by a guy named Harry Beckwith that I read decades ago, but it's called Selling the Invisible. And it's all about how selling services is different from selling tangible products. And there are a lot of great points in that. Uh, uh, but uh, in, in terms of the psychology of it, the need for an origin myth, I think that those, are, those fundamentals are the same. Okay. And so earlier you, you brought up neural networks. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring that back uh, full circle. Nerd. The, okay. <laughs> no, um, with the, with the addition of automation into the website experience, the customer experience, um, how a customer is interacting with the brand, how do you maintain that loyalty when you're adding in that non-human element? Oh boy. Um, I think that's a question only for the 1%, and I don't mean the rich, although it's highly correlated, but it's only for big companies that have sophisticated business intelligence units and can do data mining and build predictive models. But in my experience, it's a, um, well, it's not even a crawl, walk, run. It's more like flop around on your belly versus crawling situation. (laughs) I mean, there's such fundamental things that need to be fixed in online experiences that talking about advanced stuff for most companies is is a waste of time. We all have this shiny object syndrome. What's the next technology? Oh, it's virtual reality. Oh, it's voice activated. Oh, it's hologram suppositories tomorrow. I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be. But what we're missing is that we're trying to influence the human brain. And from an evolutionary standpoint, we're, we're frozen in time. It's not going to change. And, and so the thing to pay attention to are these universals and to get the basics fixed. And a lot of companies are falling down on that. So as much as I love um, neural networks and artificial intelligence, I don't think that that's really where most companies should focus. 
Yeah. Forget about the technology. It's about the, you know, the behavior and the evolutionary psychology part. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But you also said something that piqued my interest a little bit, which is that we're in a, as a human, we're, we're fixed. Our brain is not evolving anymore. Is that true? Well, you can, you can change as a human. And I think as you go through life stages, what you find meaning in definitely changes. And uh, I'm sure you'll learn painful lessons. But the fact that you learn lessons from pain versus pleasure, um, that's not going to change. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to draw the parallel now back to I as an individual want to be uncomfortable and challenge myself. And I, as a marketer business, do not want people to be uncomfortable and challenge themselves when they reach my landing page, right? And (laughs) (laughs) you don't want them to have the painful experience on your website. Right. I don't want their mental model of my website to change. Uh, (laughs) But it's interesting because we're using the same terminology. So we're saying, what are the pain points? What are the, like, where is the friction point of, of this website when we're looking at optimizing it? And so that, that is, I'm trying to like, just be like, huh. Speaking of pain points, let's hear one more piece of evidence about how this website is tormenting its visitors. Well, I suppose we were trying a little too hard to stand out. We tried a bunch of unique design elements that we thought made the site different from everything else out there. But now I'm beginning to wonder, maybe we were just confusing people. Maybe there's a good reason so many websites look the same. Maybe so many websites look the same for a reason. I'm wondering that, too. Is it a good idea to use unique style elements, Tim? My professor, Don Norman, who's you know brilliant in this field, and he was talking about convention ones. We'll forget where I read this, but he's basically saying convention is just a, an agreement among a group of people about how to do something. Like, you know, here in the U.S., we drive on the right side of the road. In England, they do it in the opposite. And there's not ones inherently better. It's just what you're used to in some initial starting point that somebody made a decision, right? And so, but it's a convention that people follow. So over time for mobile sites, that hamburger menu, those three horizontal lines that indicate a drop-down menu became a standard. But for a while, people had no idea what that symbol even meant. And so one of the, as, as customer experience designers, one of the things we need to look at is how can we take advantage of existing conventions? I want to piggyback on that as much as possible so that um, I get that effortless, habitual understanding. And that's what I mean by removing friction points and pain points. If you came up with a user interface that was a 3D hologram and you have to walk around with your avatar in a virtual world, that's a lot of stuff for me to learn. And it might be a lot better, but without that common agreement and a group of people understand how to use that kind of interface, it's not some big innovation. It's actually making me consciously think, creating uncomfort and discomfort rather, and um, putting me on guard, which is not the state you want me in. You want me to feel safe and comfortable and to, again, have clarity about what you want me to do on your website. Right. Yeah. 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 That sense of safety is a really interesting framing of how you want. And, and it is like, it, you know, am I in the right place? Am I here for the am I getting what I came here for? You know, like, like that safe sense of safety is really like a human need that you're also trying to fill in this like sort of business website landing sense. I've learned a lot working with Tim today. I feel like I'll be examining every website I visit with a magnifying glass now. Let's debrief. 
I'm taking some really useful lessons away from our conversation. One, get in the customer's head. You'll learn more about their pain points by talking to your contacts in our team, monitoring social media, reading reviews, and simply watching what they do. Two, create a simple website with a clear visual hierarchy and low-key branding, and make your call to action the most eye-grabbing element. And three, tap into what your customer effortlessly understands. Give your website a sense of familiarity. This will make it more intuitive to customers and easier to navigate. Thank you both so much for your help. We clearly have some work to do here, but you've given me some simple ways that I think will make our website much, much better. I think there are a few improvements we can definitely make right away, and that should make a big difference for our conversion metrics. Let's celebrate cracking the case. Let's head to the HGS pub, kick back with our virtual drink, and cover some lighthearted ground. We've cracked the case on uh, <laughs> website optimization. I would love to hear about about the book specifically, kind of what was your process? What made you want to write the third one that was so different from the first two? Mm. How Your own evolution to get to that point where you're like, this is it, I have to write this. Yeah, great question. Well, as I mentioned back in my college days at UC San Diego, I had already a psychology as well as a hard sciences focus. And it was great preparation for a career that didn't exist at the time, which is internet marketing. And so I had a good run in that, uh, accomplished a lot of things, ran my agency for over 20 years. And at some point, I realized that we were helping our clients. And yes, we made them a lot of money, uh, but I wasn't reaching a broad enough audience with my message. I tried to do public speaking. I wrote the books on landing page optimization, but I really felt like my calling, my purpose on this planet was to be more of a, a teacher and an evangelist and to help people to lead better lives. And my particular way of doing that was to, I think, fill in this giant gap that we have. You know, there's specialists in silos in behavioral economics, medical imaging, um, social sciences, all kinds of areas that inform our behavior. But the elephant in the room that wasn't being addressed is the fact that evolution is the thread through all of that. And there weren't any accessible books on the subject. And so I wanted to just condense it all without um, tables, without footnotes, without screenshots, and just distill it down to the essentials. And like I said, retrace this arc of evolution to describe how we behave and where we picked it up. So it was really the... Um, my mission is to explain human beings to human beings. It's a pretty ambitious book because it covers memory, learning, sleep, storytelling, um, a lot of things. I've never seen that in one place. So I said, ah, this is my mission. Yeah. I mean, you're making me want to read it. I will go to the local bookshop and not Amazon and um, look for it. But um, well, is there anything that I that you wanted to talk about that I kind of missed or glossed over? Um, throughout this interview or in the HGS pub um, <laughs> that we that we want to cover right now? I would say that I just want to emphasize again, it's not about the technology. It's not about the, the new, new thing. It's about evolutionary psychology. So if you want to have a good career and you know, customer experience, study customers. And they're not customers, they're people. So study people. And Evolutionary psychology is the is the uh, is the foundational discipline for all of that, and uh, so and again, I, the reason I wrote the book was to make it accessible. I didn't want it to be buried in some academic journals 
So you can go to primalbrain.com to find out more about the book. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with me. Um, we will go to primalbrain.com. Check that out. Anything else you want us to look up? Yeah, that's that's for the book. Uh, if you want just information about my keynote speaking or marketing advisory services, uh, go to timash.com. I'm very easy to find. And please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very open to, to connecting there. Awesome. Thank you so much again. This, is, this has been incredible. I appreciate you. Lisa, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to CX Detectives, brought to you by HGS. If you liked what you heard today, or even if you didn't, tell a friend, a coworker, your office frenemy. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Next time there's a CX case to be cracked, we'll be there. This podcast is brought to you by HGS, a global leader in optimizing the customer experience lifecycle, digital transformation, and business process management. HGS is helping its clients become more competitive every day. Learn more at hgs.cx.